0: and out And no mistake
1: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
2: I'm Tank Gritstone. And I'm Damian Curtis. It's Thursday, April 1st, and what you just heard are the lyrics to our podcast theme song. And that's all I'm going to say.
1: Thanks, Tank. Here's what we're going to talk about this week.
3: First, the pandemic has made access to mental health care an even bigger priority. But one unique effort in Reno, Nevada has turned into a battle.
2: Our STAT colleague Mario Aguilar joins us to discuss. Next, Illumina's FTC blues, why the genome sequencing giant is in the regulators' crosshairs again. We talk with NYU antitrust expert Eleanor Fox about the implications for Illumina and biotech more broadly.
1: Finally, due to popular demand, a lightning round. All the biotech news from the week that you need to know.
2: But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay from STAT. A silver lining of the pandemic is the rapid acceleration of digital health and telemedicine. I'm here with Manoj Narayanan, the CTO of Real Chemistry, a digitally connected global health innovation company. Manoj, your team recently published a report about how doctors' digital behaviors have changed during this digital health renaissance. Tell us about that. Thanks, Angus. According to a recent survey of 500 doctors, we learned a tremendous amount about how physicians' online and offline behaviors are changing. As more and more doctors spend time online in their professional and personal lives, how we reach them in the right place, with the right message, at the right time, is more complex today than ever before. Thanks, Manoj. To learn more, visit go.realchemistry.com stat Last year, the mayor of Reno, Nevada, proposed a novel idea to meet the mental health needs of her community. Spend $1.3 million of coronavirus relief funding to give every teenage and adult resident of the city free access to virtual therapy sessions through the digital app Talkspace.
3: The mayor's idea was novel. Nothing like this had ever been done before. It was also well-intentioned. Many Reno residents, like Americans everywhere, were struggling with the isolation and anxiety brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: But as you might imagine, trying to bring free mental health services to 200,000 eligible residents of a single city through a cell phone app created challenges and was not universally welcomed. Stat reporter Mario Aguilar has been reporting on this fascinating civic experiment and joins us to discuss the story he wrote this week. Mario, welcome to the Read Out Loud.
2: Hi. So Mario, tell us about Reno's mayor. Who is she and how did this idea come to her?
4: Sure. Uh, the mayor is Hillary Schivi. Um, And the genesis of the idea sort of happened last year when she actually experienced the loss of several family members within a couple weeks of each other. She reached out to a number of therapists in the community um, and and ultimately found the way lots of people looking for therapy find that she couldn't get an appointment for four to six weeks. She was devastated at the time and really needed support. Ultimately, she was able to find it through Talkspace. Uh, later in the year, the city had some coronavirus relief funding, which was gonna expire at the end of the year um, and that they hadn't yet spent. She devised a plan to uh, spend it on Talkspace. Um, and the, the plan was sort of cooked up uh, in the month of November um, and presented to the city council uh, at the beginning of December.
3: So let's talk about Talkspace specifically. It's probably best known for advertisements that feature Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. But how does the service actually work?
4: So it's uh, it's an app. You download it. Um, and and part of the appeal is that it really gets you connected with a therapist super quickly. You answer a few questions, and then you're presented with a couple of options of therapists that are licensed in the state that you're in. Um, once you connect with them, you can text them whenever you want Um, And they will respond five days a week Uh, There are some limitations to you know when they will respond But the idea is that you'll get a response within a couple of hours five days a week Uh, Depending on the plan that you have you may also have live video uh, Sessions once a week or once a month and and the plan that the Reno residents were uh, were given uh, After this deal uh, allowed for for one video live video therapy session per month
1: And Mario, in your story, you write that the Reno Talkspace arrangement was not universally welcomed in the city. And the most vocal opposition came from therapists and other mental health professionals who live and work in Reno. So were they just worried they were going to get put out of business? Or what were their objections?
4: That's part of it. Uh, I think that, first of all, they were blindsided. Like, they had no idea that this was happening. As I said before, it was, the deal was cooked up really fast behind closed doors. It was a no-bid contract. And they felt that as the people who are dealing with these issues every day in their community, they should be the ones, or they should be consulted at least about what the best solution is. Obviously, they're local business owners. And, you know, during the pandemic, many of them had reduced rates or or come up with uh, sort of, differing financial arrangements to keep people in therapy. Lots of people lost their jobs and couldn't afford to pay out of pocket anymore, had lost their health insurance. Um, And and generally, there's a lot of people who who need therapy who can't afford it and could have been subsidized with the money. Uh, Beyond that, there is concern that the deal did not sort of create any kind of lasting infrastructure. It sent the money to a New York-based corporation that you know, ultimately when the deal was over, it was up and, and there wouldn't be sort of any investment in, in in building the resources that the community has to deal with the mental health crisis, which will not end at the end of 2021, right? It's ongoing and it's, it's you know, by most accounts gotten a lot worse during the pandemic. And then, you know, I think the last piece of it is that there is uh, skepticism in therapeutic communities about the efficacy of Uh, chat therapy, right? Most of Talkspace therapy happens over text. And Talkspace claims that they have, you know, 10 studies validating that this really works. It's still not the kind of practice that is commonly accepted um, among, you know, the thousands of people who practice therapy in the United States.
2: So how did Talkspace and its supporters, including the Reno mayor, how did they respond to these criticisms?
4: Well, you know, they they said that, first of all, the point of this was never to replace the important work of the local therapists. Talkspace is a touchpoint, right? It is meant to provide a stopgap uh, for all the people, like the mayor, who cannot get into therapy and need someone to talk to in the short term. You know, they say... It's really hard to get into therapy, and we need to provide people an avenue to at least begin to have the conversation. There's a lot of stigma surrounding therapy. This can help get people in the door through a, through a method that is easier than having to jump through a lot of hoops to get into, um, you know, regular talk therapy. Um, and finally, you know, they the mayor sort of agreed to engage with the community to try, you know, the therapeutic community to to try to come up with some. Uh, ways that they might find some money to to support some of the ideas that they had.
3: So Reno started this talkspace experiment in January. How many residents have tapped into the app services? And I know it's early, but are, are there any signs that it might be working as intended?
4: So, um, as of last week, there were about 1,350 uh. 1,350, uh People actively using it, which means that they had signed up for the service and and actually communicated with a therapist. I saw a report earlier this week that you know, that it was you know less than fourteen hundred, but it, it's proceeding s- sort of slowly. That's depending who you ask. That's a either a, a remarkable achievement or you know a really really bad use of one point three million dollars. The city has said it it, it hopes to you know, get to 1% adoption or, you know, roughly 2,000 people in relatively short order. And they haven't said um, how many people they hope to have by the end of the year.
1: So the contract expires in December. And you said Reno doesn't have the money right now to renew. So what's going to happen?
4: That's exactly right. This is is one-time coronavirus money, right? So there is no 1.3 million or whatever the contract would be for 2022 right now. The company told me that they really hope that Reno will find a way to continue. However, if they cannot, the company's COO, Mark Hirschhorn, committed, you know, to finding a way to to ease the transition, primarily by probably aggressive pricing um, that would make it sort of more accessible to people. But he he said that there's no way that they're going to just kick people off on on December twenty first if if they can't pay.
2: And Mario, as we said at the top, this was a unique experiment. Is Talkspace thinking about doing this with any other city?
4: So that's an interesting question. Um, they have a couple of city contracts to provide all of the city employees, including Irvine, Memphis, Tennessee. They actually describe this as really similar to the kinds of contracts that they ink with uh, large health payers. Um, so you know, you if you have a a large health plan with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people on it. It's kind of a similar kind of contract. They say they would absolutely try to do this again, although um, ideally they would not have to rush the deal so much and could get sort of spend more time building local infrastructure um, and and ramping up to the deal such that um, things like um, the local therapist uh, community would not be angered.
3: Mario, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Spare a thought for Illumina. The $56 billion titan of genomics has become the world's leading supplier of DNA sequencing technology. That's been great for the company's bottom line over the years, but Illumina's market dominance is making it incredibly difficult to expand the business.
3: The latest example came this week when the Federal Trade Commission moved to block Illumina's latest deal, a $7.1 billion merger with the cancer testing company, Grail. Now, Grail's products are meant to detect cancer at the earliest stages when it's most susceptible to treatment.
2: But those products rely heavily on Illumina's DNA technology and so too do Grail's competitors. In the eyes of the FTC, if Illumina were to acquire Grail, it would have the incentive to raise prices on those competitors to give Grail an unfair advantage. So the FTC is suing to stop the merger. And
1: that's the second time in about a year that the federal government has stepped in to block Illumina's attempt to buy another company. And it brings up an existential question. Has it become too big and too powerful to legally expand?
3: Joining us to discuss the issue is Eleanor Fox, a professor of law at the New York University School of Law and expert in antitrust. Eleanor, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: You're welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks.
2: So Eleanor, what do you think of the FTC's case here? Does it sound like there's a legitimate risk of Illumina using its dominant position in DNA sequencing to rig the market in favor of Grail?
0: So the answer to your second question is yes. There is a very significant risk that Illumina could and would rig the market in favor of Grail. So this is not a problem of whether Illumina is too big. It is a problem of whether Illumina has this power to throw off every rival, to to clear the way for Grail to succeed and to put roadblocks in the way of every other competitor. It's really more about innovation than it is about price. Um, And and this is the problem. Illumina has the essential input uh, to these um, technologies that we hope will be really early detection of cancer. It's really the only platform right now on which those companies that are trying to get to market on the detection have to rely, both for some machinery and for what they call some consumables. So the complaint that the FTC filed says that Illumina knows very well Um, that it can derail the progress of any of those competitors who are all rushing to get to market. A question is whether you should presume that it will derail, especially if it's illegal to derail. So this puts you into an area of great potentialities. It's a very different case from the usual merger case because Grail hasn't even gotten to market yet. It's running this race with a few other competitors running the race. And Illumina has the clear ability and incentive to handicap the others. It can make it harder for them to get the machinery or the consumables, where it can delay the supply. It can do any one of a number of things to make it harder for the others. But here's where it becomes really difficult legally and in court because rail doesn't even have market power yet. It hasn't even gotten the market. And so how can the Federal Trade Commission prove that the merger is increasing market power? This is, this is difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm also saying our law is conservative. It's not in general on the side of a plaintiff trying to make a new pathway. Uh, to prohibit a merger,
1: how much does um, Illumina's current history um, of operating in a setting where it it already, according to analysts following this space and who um, objectively, you know, are rooting for Illumina's stock, so so maybe a bit biased, but some argue that Illumina already competes with perhaps its customers. Um, How much does its history of behavior weigh into the FTC's ability to bring a case here saying in the future it could be a danger to competition?
0: Here's a big difficulty also that the FTC has to face. Illuminus says that if we own Grail, or own the whole thing, because it already has a stake, Uh, if we own Grail, Uh, we will be able to invest in it in the right ways and bring it to market earlier, better, and cheaper. And frankly, if it could prove that, um, that is a serious barrier to the government case. Um, Think about it the other way around. Suppose it couldn't prove that um, and that the whole case is Illumina has the power and incentive to derail rivals, that case looks really good in theory. But if Illumina can say, we're going to get something better, earlier and cheaper to the consumer with the acquisition, um, then uh, the commission and then the courts might not want to enjoin it. So
3: kind of zooming out, if Illumina were to lose this case, or if it were to simply back off of the Grail merger out of, you know, Adjusting for risk and not wanting to uh, to really go to the mat with the FTC, where would this leave the company moving forward? Like, if you're the world's largest supplier of DNA sequencing technology, is that suggesting that it's almost impossible to legally buy a company that relies on DNA sequencing technologies? Because that's a lot of companies.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and also has implications for a court might not want to stop that possibility because the answer is yes that if Say the FTC wins um, rather than simply Illumina folds. Um, if the FTC wins, what implications does that have for the acquisition history future of Alumina? And that's pretty serious if the answer is, oh, it just can't buy anyone that it is supplying um, because. It's in a position, a monopoly position regarding a critical input.
2: Have other companies successfully navigated out of a predicament like this? You know, like are there historic examples that Illumina might be able to follow?
0: Oh, so let me say one way to maneuver out of it is um, Illumina could form its own startup. And the FTC would say, that's exactly what we want to do. Uh, We don't want it to be on the market taking all the rivals off the market, because that's what some firms do. I mean, this is just one, but this is a strategy, a strategy of Facebook. Oh, we take all the rivals off the market. Um, So the FTC might be very pleased and happy to say, "Okay, let Illumina invest itself. Um, And the court won't stop that even though there are some of the same problems, because it still might prefer itself, but it's a better way to grow. It's such an interesting point because with the history of Illumina and Grail,
1: Illumina actually um, founded Grail.
0: (laughs) So it was an Illumina startup, and now they've gotten themselves in this predicament. Oh, I know. I mean, that's so interesting. And I was just reading the complaint and there's a lot redacted on the complaint, meaning you can't see certain things. And at the point where it says, why did Illumina get rid of most of the the stock in Grail? It's redacted and I couldn't tell why.
1: Hmm, mysteries. So pivoting a little, the FTC said last month that it's going to take a harder line on mergers in the drug industry, looking more closely at their effects on research, rather than just the markets for approved products. Do you think that there's a sea change taking place in how the FTC looks at deal making?
0: Oh, So that's also a good question. And that question goes into a big, big discussion of, is antitrust too soft? Has it become too mild and unaggressive, which has been a big challenge over the last couple of years. And, I, and Congress is looking into it, everybody's looking into it. Has it just been non-aggressive given the possibilities for the use of the antitrust laws? And the FTC and the Justice Department has reacted to that criticism and they've actually become more aggressive in the last um, year, they've filed more cases. So they have the the Congress, in a way, over its shoulder, thinking of new legislation. And some of the enforcers, but not all, would like to be able to say, "We're, we're going the limit. We're going as far as we can go. We're doing everything necessary right now. And we don't need new legislation. Others like the acting chair right now, and certainly Lena Kahn, who's going to come on board, would say we also need new legislation. Uh, But you can see these forces at play, where the FTC is becoming more aggressive.
3: So you mentioned the acting chair, that's Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who uh, President Biden named into that position earlier this year. What should people know about, you know, her ideologically, her approach to To regulating antitrust? How do you think, um, you know, her authorial hand is playing a role in in, in some of the stuff you're talking about?
0: I think she's doing a very good job. Um, She does take a stance that she agrees with the criticism that the law has been too laxly applied. Uh, The criticism goes not just to the enforcers, but to the Supreme Court which has made it very, very hard to win almost any antitrust case. So she's trying to push that envelope. So getting the law in a posture where it's more aggressive and it's more forward thinking and also supporting legislation that would give the FTC more powers and would change some of the standards.
2: Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us.
0: You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: This was a busy week in the biotech world. And what better way to bring you all of the news than our most beloved segment, The Lightning Round.
3: So first up, while we didn't actually rename this podcast AstraZeneca WTF as previously threatened, there was a lot more news on that vaccine this week, as well as for J&J and Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccines. Meg, you have been following all of this closely. What should we know?
1: So on the AstraZeneca vaccine, of course, we've been following the developments around blood clots uh, that have caused a lot of governments in Europe to stop using the vaccine. Um, It hadn't been clear that these clots were actually happening at a rate that was higher than you might normally see without the vaccine. Um, It did seem this week that um, there might have been more data suggesting there might be a slightly elevated rate. And in fact, Germany has now suspended use of the shot for people under 60. Um, and so from just following people who've been you know, following this very closely, like Kai Kupferschmidt, schmidt for example, the, the science reporter, um, it does seem like there is increasing concern that the rates may be elevated. At the same time, there is this debate um, over still being a very low risk and the very high and present risk of COVID. So that is something we continue to follow. Another kind of head-scratcher story um, broke late Wednesday night from the New York Times about Johnson and Johnson's vaccine and manufacturing by its partner, Emergent BioSolutions. The New York Times reported that it actually looked like Emergent BioSolutions might've mixed up ingredients from the AstraZeneca vaccine, which it also manufactures, and the J&J vaccine, leading J&J to have to throw out uh, basically a batch that amounted to about 15 million doses. And this is a single shot vaccine. And so the reaction is just, uh, you know, from a lot of people who follow the drug industry, like, oh, these things happen, but this is awful. And a lot of people in the public health world saying 15 million doses, that's 15 million people. J&J is saying it is still going to meet its targets. Um, But guys, my understanding is, you know, the FDA has to authorize this emergent biosolutions plant. And if that is delayed, you know, that could really throw a wrench into things. And finally, I'll just round out our vaccine segment by mentioning Pfizer this week, two updates uh, from them, one showing that the vaccine in 12 to 15 year olds was 100% effective in preventing disease. It was still small numbers, so it's kind of early to make that 100% claim, but still uh, the first data really going down that young, very strong, and they plan to file for emergency use authorization for them, hopefully in time for back to school in the fall. Um, and then Thursday morning, they put out an update, um, one from South Africa, showing that they had strong efficacy there, including against the B1351 variant. That's the first data we've seen on an mRNA vaccine against that variant. And it was looked stronger than what we've seen from Novavax and J&J, although again, very small numbers, only nine cases they saw there, but they were all on the placebo. Um And the other update is that J&J now has six-month data following up from the second dose of their phase three trial, and they show out to six months, 91% efficacy, and that's enough data for them to file for full approval. And so we could potentially see this vaccine get the full FDA green light, which could have implications for employers or schools mandating the vaccine.
3: Next, it's the beginning of a new quarter of the year and Adam you published a story this week on the biggest things to watch in biotech over the next 3 months. What do you think are the most important upcoming events that people should have on their radar?
2: Yeah, so let's start with a quick look back at at the first quarter because I think biotech investors were in kind of really unfamiliar territory. You know, the major indices in biotech were down for the year and are underperforming the broader market averages. You know, as the the biotech analyst at Cowen noted, um, you know, the last time the biotech indices had a negative year-to-date performance was one year ago, and that was in the first quarter of 2020. Um, as you guys will remember, the pa- the pandemic was was starting to rage and the economy was shutting down. But even then, biotech stocks were performing better than the broader market. So it's been a really long time uh, since biotech stocks overall. Were, we're so weak, but as we as we look ahead for the next three months, uh, Damien, as you know, the probably the biggest event will be the FDA approval decision on Biogen's uh, controversial Alzheimer's drug aducanumab. I also knew that. You should get continue. You, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, Meg. You do. It's just I always feel like with Damien, like Damien and I have like obsessing over this. We've been writing so many stories about aducanumab. I feel like we're like on the aducanumab beat. Um, but yes, that decision is gonna come at the very latest June 7th. It might come before that, but but June 7th is the is the deadline for the FDA to make that decision. And obviously that has huge implications, not only for biogen, but for Alzheimer's patients and just the overall healthcare market. Um, after that, I would say, you know, Vertex is expected to read out results from a mid-stage study of a drug for a rare inherited lung disorder. You know, what makes this study so important is that it's kind of a big test of Vertex's internally derive research pipeline. You know, can the company produce another blockbuster drug after its success in cystic fibrosis? Uh, you know, if it can't, if if the if this study comes out negative, you know that could force the company to get more aggressive with M and A. Uh, and lastly, I'll note that you know spring is here, and that means that the pace of medical meetings accelerates. Particularly in cancer, we've got three big cancer meetings uh, coming up over the next few months. We've got AACR and ASCO, and then uh, a European Hematology Association meeting. So a lot of cancer data on the horizon.
1: There was also news this week in the CRISPR gene editing space. Damien, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, it was kind of an odd... Dust up that was is maybe low stakes in the sense that it's sort of an, an academic issue, but considering, as everyone listens to this, knows how litigious the genome editing field has been, I think a lot of people paid attention to it. So, the, the, the broad strokes of it are Intellia Therapeutics, uh, a company you may know for their work in CRISPR, they did a presentation at Cold Spring Harbor explaining how they were going to get into base editing, which is a, I think we've described it as CRISPR 2.0, which probably annoys academics, but basically it's a more precise way of doing genome editing, one that allows you to change individual letters of DNA without breaking the double helix, which is something that we've seen with CRISPR-Cas9 editing, at least. Now, the thing about base editing is that it was first described back in 2016 by a group of researchers out of Harvard and elsewhere um, who have since gotten together to found a company called Beam Therapeutics to interrogate base editing. Now, those researchers were watching Intellia's presentation pretty closely, as you might assume you wanna see what the competition is up to, and what they saw was a description of work that looked an awful lot like theirs and and stuff that's been published in years since then by other scientists. But what they missed was any citation or acknowledgement of their work. And so that was upsetting to them, obviously, you know, that people want to be credited for what they've done. Now, Intellia said it didn't mean to, you know, pave over the precedent and 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 issued a statement saying, you know,' we're trying to do this the right way. But I think a lot of people reading between the lines look at it as, Intelia thinks it has a way of doing base editing that doesn't step on Beam's intellectual property. Beam probably is going to disagree with that. And so this relatively minor thing over a presentation at an academic conference could be maybe a shot across the bow or or sort of a preview of an intellectual property dispute that could be on the horizon between these two companies.
1: And finally, some sad news. Former Gilead Sciences chairman and CEO John Martin died this
3: week. Adam, you've covered Gilead for decades now. How do you reflect on Martin's impact on the world of biotech and on medicine more broadly?
2: Yeah, you know, he's a he's a giant in biotech, uh, you know, that helped create, you know, one of the largest and most successful drug makers in, in biotech, you know, a dominant player in antiviral treatments, particularly, you know, HIV and hep C. And, you know, and, and beyond sort of the business side, I mean, he, you know, what he did and, you know, in contributions with other people really, you know, helped a lot of patients uh, if you think about Gilead's drugs in HIV you know they really transformed that disease from what was a, a death sentence into a chronic manageable disease uh, you know and then years after that you know Gilead kind of did the same thing with hepatitis C you know they developed a, a single pill treatment that cured disease in weeks uh, for almost all patients um, so you know again a tremendous impact. On patients. Now, you know, on the other side, you can say that, you know, a lot of Gilead's medicines cost a lot. They, you know, they were they were priced pretty aggressively. And, you know, particularly the hep C drugs, you know, famously were, you know, it was a thousand dollars per pill per day. Uh, and that sparked a, a lot of political scrutiny over drug pricing. You know, it still persists today.
3: Martin's place in the history of Gilead is, is kind of fascinating because it's always, you know, success has so many authors, but it, it remains true that Gilead was focused on oligonucleotide treatments and, and never really got anywhere with that in the 1980s. But John Martin joined the company, I think, in 1990, and he was an expert in antiviral chemistry. Um, and that coincided with, I'm not saying he necessarily spurred it, but that coincided with Gilead's pivot to antivirals. And then, of course, the the huge approval that they received in the early 2000s for Viriad, their first... HIV drug so you know th- this is a company that's s- synonymous with antiviral medicine and you know this is the guy who before he was CEO was really a galvanizing force uh, in their embrace of that research so it's kind of hard to understate um, the importance he had in the history of that company.
2: That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
1: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke.
3: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you caught all of our unquestionably funny April Fool's Day jokes. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloudstatnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
1: See you next week.